Section 44 of the Letters of Madame de Sévigné to her daughter and friends. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. Letters to the President de Morceau continued. Letter 5. June the 13th, 1684. Word was sent me from Languedoc that I had a lawsuit pending there, that Monsieur de Grignon was prosecuted with rigour, and the judges were strange people. I cursed them heartily, sir, and have since found out that you are one of the principals. It is you, therefore, that I have loaded with so many imprecations, you whose protection I have claimed to soften the rigour and to attend to the justice of my cause. It is to Monsieur d'Augouge I am indebted for the information that this odious judge and this highly esteemed Monsieur Mousseau are one and the same. All the anger kindled against the first has disappeared at the name of the second, and weapons have fallen from my hand like those of Arcabon when she recognised Amadis. It is to Monsieur de Mousseau that I address this quotation from the opera. You will suppose that in virtue of your title of judge, I shall quote nothing but laws to you. There is one established law in the world, particularly among honest men, which is never to condemn unheard. In this, sir, consists the favour I have to ask you. The Prince de Conti claims an estate of which we have been in possession for three hundred years. I know from Monsieur de Covenelli that three hundred years is a strong title. We request you, sir, to give us time to collect our proofs, to convince you of the weakness of the Prince de Conti's claim and of the solidity of ours. Letter 6, Paris, November twenty fourth, 1685. I have received no letter from you for more than fifteen months. I know not whether our enraged and jealous friend has intercepted any. It is not, however, like him to do so. He would be more inclined to assassinate you with the little sword you once used so pleasantly in the garden of Rambouillet. Footnote a jest which refers to Corbinelli. Back to main text. We shall never forget your wisdom nor your folly. And I've spent a year with my son in Brittany, where we've often mentioned you with sentiments with which your merit must impress all hearts that are not unworthy of knowing it. We have been twenty times on the point of writing some nonsense to you. We wish to assure you that the scarcity of the gratification did not prevent you from often being in our remembrance, and twenty times the demon which turns aside good intentions perverted the course of this. At length, sir, after having been overturned, drowned, and had a wound in my leg which has not healed within these six weeks, I left my son and his wife, who was very pretty, and arrived at Bavie at Monsieur de Lamignon's on the 10th or 12th of September, where I found my daughter and all the Grignons. They received me with joy and affection. To complete my happiness, my daughter will not leave me this winter. I have found our dear Covinelli just as I left him, except a little more philosophical, and dying every day from some cause or other. 
His freedom excites my envy. In changing his object, he would become a saint. He is, however, so kind and charitable to his neighbour that I really believe the grace of God is concealed under the name of Cartesian. He converts more heretics by his good sense and by not irritating them by vain disputes than others by all their controversy. In short, everyone now is a missionary. Everyone thinks he has a mission and particularly the magistrates and governors of provinces upheld by the dragoons. This is the greatest and most noble action that has ever been conceived or performed. Like us, you have been surprised with other news. What an event is the death of the Prince de Conti. After having experienced all the perils of the Hungarian war, he came here to die of a disorder which he scarcely felt. His lovely widow has deeply bewailed him. She has an annuity of a hundred thousand crowns and has received from the king so many marks of friendship and of his natural affection for her that with such assistance no one can doubt that she will in time be comforted. Letter 7. Livre. October the 25th. 1686. I received your letter, sir. It presented itself to me as if you wished to make me ashamed of my silence and to believe I had been ill for the purpose of entering into a conversation with me. It reminds me of a very pretty comedy in which the person who wishes to come to an explanation with the lady who enters makes her believe she called him and thus obtains a hearing. If you have the same intention, sir, I return you a thousand thanks. And I really cannot comprehend how, esteeming you as I do, and remembering you with so much pleasure, speaking of you so readily, having so high a relish for your understanding and your worth, to say no more for fear of exciting jealousy, I can, with so many things to promote a correspondence, have left you seven or eight months without saying a word to you. It is horrible, but what does it signify? Let us remain in this freedom, since it's not compatible with the sentiments I've just expressed for you. I have seen Monsieur Latrousse. We talked of you the moment we had embraced. I think him, by what he told me, highly deserving the esteem you appear to entertain for him. The stroke is at least double. I found him perfectly acquainted with and as sensible of your worth as you can possibly desire. He must pass through this place on his way to La Trousse. I shall show him your letter and I do not think it would induce him to change his opinion. You have now Monsieur de Noailles with you. You are in such favour there that I shall rejoice with you on the pleasure you will receive at the man whom you have inspired with such lively sentiments of esteem for you. I can easily imagine the confusion which the derangement of the States must have occasioned you, but you cannot dispense with going to Nîmes. I must say a word to you respecting Mademoiselle de Grignon. You know, I presume, 
that she has been in the convent of the Carmelites for eight months, and that she took the habit in form with a zeal too violent to last. In the first three months she found herself so reduced from the severity of the order, and her stomach so injured by the meagreness of the provision, that she was obliged to eat meat by compulsion. This inability to comply with the rules, even in her novitiate, induced her to quit the convent, but with so true a sentiment of piety, of humiliation at the delicacy of her health, and of such perfect contempt for the world, that the holy nuns have preserved an affectionate friendship for her. And she, who has only changed the habit and not the sentiment, has no false shame like those who grow weary of the life, and is now with us, as usual, giving us the same edification. Her residence at Paris is fixed at the Fregantine, where she will board with several others. She will return there at Martinmas when we do. What attaches her to this house is its vicinity to the Carmelites, where she goes daily and whenever a certain princess is there. She takes from this holy convent all that agrees with her, that is, devotion and conversation, and leaves the strictness of the order, to which she was by no means equal. It is thus God has conducted her, and gently repulsed her from the high degree of perfection to which she aspired, to support her in another, a little inferior to it, which cannot but be good, since he gives her grace to love him alone, which is all that can be desired in this world. But Providence has also inspired her with the most noble, just, and praiseworthy thought it was possible to conceive for her family. She was determined that her return to the world should not deprive her father of what she'd wished to give him by her civil death, and at quitting her convent, she made him a very handsome present of 40,000 crowns which he owed her, that is, 20,000 crowns principal, and the rest arrears and sums borrowed. This gift has been duly estimated, not only by those who love Monsieur de Grignon, but by those who knew that all her property becoming personal at the age of five and twenty, if she had not disposed of anything by will, would go almost wholly to her father, and that Monsieur de Grignon would have eighty thousand crowns to pay Mademoiselle d'Alarac, reckoning the principal of the jointure at forty thousand. This is enough in conscience for us not to pity the sister and to rejoice that the family is relieved from this double payment. I own I have been very much affected at this seasonable and generous action, and I admire the goodness of her disposition which led her to do, without affectation, the only thing in the world that could render her dear to her family she is now received and considered as its benefactress. The understanding alone might have wrought this effect in another, but it is best when produced only by the heart. My daughter has contributed so well to this little manoeuvre that she has received double pleasure from its success. The Chevalier has also done wonders 
for you may suppose it has been necessary to assist and give a form to these good intentions. In short, all has gone well. Even Mademoiselle Dalrach has entered into the justice of the sentiment. I pray that God may reward her by a good establishment, of which he still conceals from us every prospect, so that at present there is no appearance of anything of the kind. Do I not weary you, sir, by this long account? You will have an indigestion of the Grignons. To divert you, let us talk a little of poor Sévigné. I should mention him with grief, if I could not tell you that after five months of horrible suffering from medicines which worked him to the very bone, the poor child is at length restored to perfect health. He has spent the whole of August with me in this retreat, which you are now acquainted with. We were alone with the good abbe. We had everlasting conversations, and this long intercourse has renewed our acquaintance with each other, and our acquaintance renewed our friendship. He has returned home with a stock of Christian philosophy, sprinkled with a grain of anchoritism, and particularly with an extreme affection for his wife by whom he is equally beloved, which makes him altogether the happiest man in the world, because he passes his life agreeably to his own mind. We have talked of you twenty times with friendship and delight, and twenty times we have said, let us write to him, I wish it very much. And when we have been on the point of giving ourselves this pleasure, a demon has stepped in to distract our attention and turn aside our good resolutions. What is to be done, my dear sir, in misfortunes like these? Perhaps you know the mortification of forming good resolutions without the power of executing them. I fear our dear jealous friend calculates upon spending the winter with you. You will be very glad, you will laugh and I shall cry, for I have so perfect a confidence in him and so true a friendship for him that I cannot lose the society of such a man without feeling it painfully every moment. Monsieur de Vard, however, whom he is delighted to follow, will restore him to us as he takes him away from us. I am pleased that this attachment continues. You will act your part well and I consider the pleasure of seeing you and establishing himself again in your heart as a happy circumstance for our friend. Monsieur de Vard has not been sufficiently particular in the information you omitted to tell me. The surest way is to write ourselves, as you see. I do not write to you often, but you will own, when I do, that it is not for nothing. End of section 44